Well, we are very near, nearly the end. We are very near. We're very near. Let's, can we start the tape over? Can we re- just do that again? We're near the end of this study in Hebrews. That's what I was trying to say. And uh, we, we've been in this for almost a year. And if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you'll see this momentum building as the writer, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is taking all of the truth, sort of this ancient truth, and he's applying it to our modern faith, right? If you were with us last week in, uh, at the beginning of chapter 13 here, he's made the point that our faith is not about the foods we eat, that the, our status with God and our place, our, our resurrection life has nothing to do with fancy altars or priestly vestments or being inside a tabernacle, but it's about the grace of God, that our hearts are strengthened by the grace of God. That's where our hearts find strength. And so there was this great conversation earlier in chapter 13 last week about the fact that it isn't about being inside the camp, but that we have the invitation to go outside the camp to where Jesus is, where he laid down his life in order to sanctify all of us by his shed blood on our behalf. But there's a thing that happens sometimes with people when we start to think about the grace of God and we start to recognize that it doesn't have anything to do with our work, it has nothing to do with our religiosity, it has nothing to do with performing these rituals or these ceremonies, but it's all about the grace of God, that the pendulum of our lives can almost swing too far the other direction and we go, well, it really, there is no call upon my life whatsoever. Like basically the, the grace of God has made it so that I have been set free from sin and death, I've been adopted into the family of God, and now God doesn't really really care what I do with my life, and that wouldn't necessarily be the teaching of Scripture. There is all kinds of stuff in the Scripture about the fact that the grace of God actually leads us to live differently. Titus 2 says that, the grace of God, in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, right, bringing salvation to all men. I'll read this to you rather than paraphrase it. Hebrews, or excuse me, Titus 2.11 says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says the grace has appeared and it's brought salvation, but that that grace is our trainer or our coach. It's our instructor. And the grace of God, when we understand it, we get our arms around it, it teaches us to live differently. So here in Hebrews chapter 13, the writer has made the case that our hearts are only strengthened by God's grace. And now he says then, in light of what Christ has done, let's make sacrifices. And there's probably a part of some of you that would go, well, I thought there's no longer any sacrifice for sin that remains. We already studied that in Hebrews, right? No more sacrifice for sin is there. You're correct, right? You're remembering what we studied already. There is no longer any sacrifice for sin because Christ's work is complete. But there is still a call for those who are followers of Christ to make sacrifices, to make sacrifices in light of his grace. And in order just for us to have clarity and understand what we mean, so there's some commonality here, we talk about sacrifice, we're talking about the destruction or the surrender of something precious for the sake of something else or someone else. The destruction or surrender of something precious for the sake of someone else. Remember in the Old Testament when David is going to make a sacrifice. You can read about it in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 24, David is going to make a sacrifice and there's, there's a, a foreign king that comes to David and he says, I'll give you all the animals you need and all the wood for your altar and all the things you need to make a sacrifice to God. And I'm just going to give those to you. And David says, time out. He says, I, I, I have to pay you for it. He says, I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. Think about that for a second. David doesn't want to offer to God a sacrifice that wasn't costly to him. When we talk about sacrifice, we're talking about the surrender or destruction of something precious 
for the sake of something or someone else. I was trying to think this week about sacrifice and the way it's sort of modeled in our lives and trying to think of a good illustration of this. And it it occurred to me, we had this deal happen in our house. My wife and I have been... um, since we moved to Fullerton, uh, the house we live in in Fullerton has like a living room and a family room, and we only had like one set of couches. So this whole last year since we moved here, that front room of our house, the living room, had, didn't, it just basically had a rug and like a couple of tables. But there's no place to sit in there. You just kind of have to you know, lay on your side or whatever. We've been saving up money to buy couches, and uh, we didn't have the money at first. We've been saving up. My wife picked out the couches she wanted, and about three weeks ago, we finally felt like we were in a financial place where we could afford to get these couches. So we ordered the couches, and they were delivered. Uh, just this last week. We got them out of the boxes. And around the same time that we're putting these brand new couches we'd waited a year for and just bought, uh, that we're putting them in, it it occurred to my wife and I both that uh, my son, Hank, who he's turning 16 this week, my son, Hank, had planned this... um, this big, you know, like he planned a birthday party. He said, hey, can I have a party? Can I have some people over for my birthday? And we were like, yeah, that's fine. You can have some people over for your birthday. The next day he comes back to us and he says, 45 people have RSVP'd, right? So what we thought was just going to be like this little gathering in our house turned out to be last night from 4 till 9 p.m. We had a, a, almost 50 high school students in our house. And uh, it was really interesting this week when it occurred to my wife that those 50 high school students were going to be coming in and eating pizza on our brand new couches. Uh, there was this really funny moment where um, she's like, what do, we, what do we do? Like, we just got, we've been waiting all this time. We finally got the couches we wanted. And now we're going to have all these high school kids in our house. And, you know, what's going to happen? And uh, it was interesting interesting on Friday this week I was like I'm working on this message and I was telling my wife like I can't think of a good example of surrendering or destroying something precious to you for the sake of someone else and she goes my couches and I'm like oh that's right that's right that's right we're doing that and it was really interesting last night during the party. By the way, many of your kids were at my house last night, and they were they're awesome. They're my, they were fantastic, and the couches, other than a few like tiny carrots shoved down inside them, they were fine. Um, but it was funny to watch my wife um, during the party, and you could just see like the conscientious and like the ongoing, continual sacrifice as she's thinking about these couches, and she's recognizing that they are not as important to her as my son. Right? That she cares more about my son than she does about stuff. That she cares more about celebrating his birthday well than she does about some stupid couches, right? That's what we're talking about. We talk about sacrifice. We're talking about the laying down or the surrendering, the destruction of something precious because of something that is even more precious still. The writer to the Hebrews says, through him, this is verse 15 of chapter 13, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. See, the key here is there is still a sacrifice for those of us who are followers of Jesus, but it's not a sacrifice in order to gain favor with God. It's not a sacrifice in order to obtain salvation. It's not a sacrifice we made in, in order to trade or to barter with God. It's a sacrifice that we are invited to make for the sake of God's pleasure, for the sake of his glory. These sacrifices, it says, are pleasing to God. It's not far off from what it says in Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, right? Or according to his mercy, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We don't make sacrifices these days in order to gain some sort of status with God. 
We make sacrifices these days because he has granted us favor by his grace, because he's adopted us in his love. And our response to that love is to value him more than we value our stuff or more than we value our own pride or more than we value our will or more than we value our time. We sacrifice those things actively and continually according to the text. We sacrifice these things because in our sacrifice we can please the God who saved us by his grace. Does that make sense? So the writer then here in 15, in light of the grace of God that strengthens our heart, he's already talked about, in light of the fact that it's not about ceremony or ritual or religion, it's not about what food you eat or don't eat, it's not about the priestly stuff and the altars and the whatever, he says in light of the fact that our lives are sustained by the grace of God, through him then, verse 15, let us continually offer sacrifices. I, w- I want to even just look at that first phrase. Through him continually. The first thing we want to recognize here is that the sacrifices you and I make only happen through him. And I mean that in a couple of different ways, as does the writer. There is one real simple way, and when we say the, 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 these sacrifices happen through him, essentially everything we have and everything we know, everything we have the opportunity to offer back to him, we only have the off- opportunity to offer back to him because he gave that to us first, right? So when it talks in the text about us making a sacrifice of our will or making a sacrifice of our time and being kind to one another and doing good deeds and sharing what we have. When it talks to us about making a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, all of those things we have the ability to use as a sacrifice, God gave us in the first place, right? We were built from the ground up to worship God. Everything we have and everything we know, he first gave us. We talk about this a lot when we do a, a financial offering in the service. We say, hey, we're not giving money to God because he needs the money or because his will or his activities or his purposes are dependent upon our giving. They aren't. We give to God because he's already given us so much. It's out of the overflow of what he's given to us. So when the writer says through him, one of the things you want to understand is that anything you and I have the ability to sacrifice, anything we lay down or surrender or destroy for the, for the sake of someone who is greater and more worthy, we only have the opportunity to offer because we have life and breath, the blood pumping through our veins, the money in our bank account, the skills we bring to bear in our vocations, the families that we have, the cities that we live in. All of the things that we enjoy, we only enjoy at the whim and the will of God, at his good pleasure. And so to offer them back to him, we're always only offering those things through him, right? But there's also, there's not just a, like a physical way in which we offer these sacrifices through him. There's also a spiritual way. The writer of the book of Hebrews has gone to great lengths to make it clear that you and I only have access to God the Father through the way that was open for us in the curtain. This new mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, Right? Again and again, the writer of the book of Hebrews has said to us, those Old Testament sacrifices didn't gain you any access to God. They didn't gain you any sort of privilege. They didn't gain you any sort of freedom. But the shed blood of Christ poured out on our behalf has obtained for us, established for us, a new covenant between us and God. It's reconciled us to God. So here in verse 15, when the writer says, through him, continually make sacrifices, that through him has both a sort of a physical, a temporal meaning, but it also has a spiritual meaning. That you and I can only offer sacrifices that are pleasing to God. We're only able to approach God because of the saving work of Christ on our behalf. Because he has restored us to relationship with God. Because he has rescued us from sin and death. Reconciled us to the Father, right? Through him, he says, so that through him is vital. He says, through him continually. Back to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice. Well, that continually is really important. 
Because I think sometimes we think about offering sacrifices once a week in a service like this, right? You have it scheduled on the time. You could be doing a hundred other things this morning. This is the last day for Premier League soccer games, right? You could be home watching, you know, the Premier League happen. Any, nobody else? Okay, it's fine. I'm the only one who watches that. It's great. Uh, there are all kinds of other things you could be doing. And maybe you think about worship on a Sunday morning as being your sacrifice. But he's not talking about a weekly sacrifice. He's not talking about a yearly sacrifice, He's talking about a continual sacrifice, a continual sacrifice. Now, it's interesting because what we want to do here is we want to juxtapose an earlier thought from the book of Hebrews again. Remember with me earlier in the book of Hebrews, it said that the sacrifices of the Old Testament priests had to be made again and again and again and again, right? They had to be made continually. Do you remember why the author says that has to happen? They had to be made continually because they could not atone for all sin, So you could make a sacrifice, the shed blood of bulls and goats and rams. You could shed this blood and make a sacrifice, but in a year you were going to have to come back and do it again because it was not sufficient. The shed blood of animals is not sufficient to atone for man's sin, and so it was a continual sacrifice that had to be made. The writer then will go on to say in the book of Hebrews, but the blood of Christ shed on our behalf is so much superior to the shed blood of bulls and goats and rams, that no more sacrifice is required. That continual sacrifice is over. So it's interesting here in verses 15, 16, and 17 then that he says, through him, that's Christ, through him, let us then offer continual sacrifices. He's putting us back in this mode of thinking about sacrifices as being ongoing and continual, right? What is that, what's what's he doing there? Well, the idea is that no matter how much we sacrifice of praise, no matter how much a sacrifice of praise we make, the fruit of lips that acknowledge him, no matter how many times we sacrifice by doing good to others and sharing what we have, no matter how much we sacrifice our will and submission to authority over us, we never quite meet his worth. We never quite get up to the standard of what he's worthy of. Does that make sense? All of us are going to, hopefully, you've made some plans to celebrate your mom today, right? If she lives close by, I hope that you're taking her out to lunch or you're getting her a cup of coffee or something. Like you're doing, you're doing something for your mom today, right? Because our moms have done so much for us. And so on Mother's Day, we make these plans to do something. Maybe you're going to go out for a fancy dinner. We're going to go to a, we're not going to go to a fancy dinner. We're going to go to a cheap dinner and then we're going to go to a movie later. That's kind of the way we orchestrated it today. But can you imagine, like, no matter where you're going for lunch with your mom, no matter what kind of a gift you bought her, when, you're, when you present that gift and when you celebrate your mom today, you won't have the ability at the end of that fancy dinner to go, well, we're even, right? We bought you a fancy dinner, and I'd say that's about it, right? I'd say we're square. You've been our mom for 44 years, and uh, this steak dinner just about calls us square, right? No. No matter what you've given her, no matter what you give her today, no matter how you honor her, it won't even come close to matching the kind of investment and the love and the time and the sacrifice and the dedication. She is worthy of so much more than you'll be able to give. That's the hard thing in even buying a gift. Because you buy a gift for your mom and you go, this doesn't even begin to do it. It's the hard thing about writing a note because no matter what you say, you go, this doesn't even begin to say it. So it's crazy that you and I could ever think come into a worship service like this and sing some songs to God or worship him through the study of his word or go and serve the poor or share what we have with other people and we could go, well, I'd say that just about squares me with God, right? I did it. I made a sacrifice. I served the poor in Mexico in Thanksgiving of 2002 and we are done, right? No, 
Because think about how worthy your mom is of honor today, and then how much more worthy God is of eternal glory and honor, right? It doesn't matter how much you praise him. It doesn't matter how much you sacrifice your will. It doesn't matter how much you give and share and sacrifice. He will always be worthy of more. And so the sacrifices that we make as those who have been saved are continual by the very nature of the fact that we will never ascribe to him all he is due. And we will spend eternity learning more and more and more and more about how worthy he is, right? So it says here, through him, let us offer continual sacrifices. I think of David's psalm in Psalm 34, one, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 104, 33 says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. It's a continual thing. Through him, we continually make sacrifices. The first sacrifice example he gives us here, and this isn't exhaustive by any means, but he says here in verse 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The first sacrifice he demonstrates here, the first example he gives us, is a sacrifice of praise, right? The relinquishing or the destruction of something value, uh, something valuable and precious for the sake of something greater a sacrifice of praise. And if you are like me, you're sort of American mind, when you think about a sacrifice of praise, your American mind goes immediately to singing, right? You go immediately to a sacrifice of praise as, whoa, we we sing a song, whatever, right? Don't, Don't let yourself be limited by that. Because what we see in the Bible is that our entire lives have been created as vessels for worship. Every thought and every word and every attitude and every action holds redemptive potential. Every thought and every word and every deed and every attitude has the potential to be a a, a vocalization of praise to God, a moment of worship. It's not just what happens in this room. It's not just what happens on this property. It's not just what happens when your Bible's open in front of you. It's what flows out of you in your vocation. It's It's what flows out of you in your homes. It's what flows out of you when you're at the gas station and the grocery store. Our lives through him are called to be a continual sacrifice of praise. And there is always a competition. There's a constant competition in the culture in which we live for us to take our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes and ascribe them to someone false or someone lesser. We are constantly being called to worship our favorite restaurants or to worship our favorite athletes or to worship our favorite movie stars or most commonly to worship ourselves. And the temptation always sits there for us to ascribe to ourself the, worthy, the, the worth that is only due to God. So there's a sacrifice that's called to be made, a sacrifice of praise, that we would be taking every thought and every deed and every moment captive to the glory of God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It isn't just what we do in this room. I talk all the time about the fact that our worship doesn't start you know, at 10.30 and then stop at 11.30. These worship services are like a mighty river where all the different rivers, the, the little tributaries and the different streams, the different creeks of our ongoing praise flow together during this time on Sunday morning and we're worshiping like a mighty river, but then at the end of the service, the worship continues. Our lives are called to be a sacrifice of praise, continual sacrifice of praise through him. Through him. And it's not just even talking about um, worship, it's talking about confession. The writer to Hebrews has said this a bunch, right? Remember, all through the book of Hebrews, he's talked again and again 
about Jesus being the hope of our confession. It's this audible acknowledgement of who God is. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. There's something confessional about our worship and our praise. It's not just something internal. It's not just something we sort of keep in a closet. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, very similarly, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. That there's a declaration of who we believe Christ is and his, what worth he is due. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, similarly says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Well, what does your confession look like this morning? What is your, what's the fruit of your lips this morning? I, I will, I'll be honest with you, there are times in my life where somebody will write me an email and they'll say, uh, oh, I had this amazing thing happen this week, or God answered this prayer, or God's opened this door, or we were trying to find this thing and God has made a way, and the first response from me on, on replying is praise God, right? I'll write praise God, maybe even with an exclamation point. And then I'll go, it's so cool that God has answered this prayer, and I'm so excited for the door he's opened for you, and I'm just excited to see what happens in the next little bill. And then before I send the email, and this is to my shame, I'll look back at it and I'll see that praise God at the beginning, and I'll go... That's going to that's gonna be cheesy, right? That's going to seem cheesy. I mean, it literally and truthfully is the first thing that came out of my guts. But I second guess it because I think, is this going to make me seem like, like this is what the pastor's supposed to say? Like, is this so cliche? I'm writing praise God. And there are times in my life where I will go back and I will edit the fruit of lips that acknowledge Christ because I don't want to seem dorky or I don't want to seem like a holy ruler. I don't want to seem overly spiritual. But it literally was the thing that came out of my guts first. We don't want to be people who are suppressing the worth of God in our lives because of what other people might think. If people want to judge me as being cheesy or a holy roller, but it's at the cost of worshiping God in every thought and word and deed and attitude, so be it. Because he's worth it. It says we offer a sacrifice, a continual sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge God. It's this confession, this audible confession of who he is in our lives. But be careful here. It isn't just an audible confession. Jesus warns, right? In Matthew 15, quoting from the Old Testament, in Matthew 15, Jesus says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You know, it is possible just to draw near to God with your external. It is possible to write praise God in an email and not feel it, right? It's possible to go through the motions and do the things without having the heart from which those things should spring. Remember that it's in light of his grace which strengthens our heart that we offer these sacrifices. We don't offer them in order to check the box. We don't offer a sacrifice of praise to be able to say that we did. We do it because he's worthy and there is no one more worthy than he. So he says here in Hebrews 13, 15, he says, let us then through him continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Verse 16, then he says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Here he's talking about the sacrifice of compassion and sharing. I think about the church, the early church in Acts 2 that says they had all things in common and they were sharing everything they had with anyone as they had need, right? This idea of giving away and sharing and caring for other people and doing good deeds. We've seen it even earlier in this chapter. If you look at the top, back up to Hebrews chapter 13, look at the beginning. It says in verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, so often you and I are reluctant to offer a sacrifice of good works. We're reluctant to offer a sacrifice of sharing what we have with other people because we've been told in our culture, again, I got to hold on to what I have. I got to keep my stuff. I got to protect myself. If I do good things to other people, they might not appreciate them. If I do good things to other people, they might take advantage of me. If I share what I have, well, then I won't have anything. So that's why earlier in the chapter, the writer has said, hey, don't worry about what you have. Don't worry about the stuff you've got or holding on your things. Be content. And here's why. Because Jesus is with you. And he's promised to take care of you and never to leave you. The implication is that when I understand the presence and provision of Christ in my life, when I understand that, then I'm freed up to go, I don't need to hold on to this stuff. I don't need to hold on to this stuff. I can care about people with generosity. I can care about other people with love. Titus 2.14, further in the text that I read from you earlier, in Titus 2.14 it says, uh, talking about Jesus, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Would you say you're zealous for good works? Are you hungry for it? Are you as hungry to do good as God is for you to do good works? I think a lot of times we're happy other people are doing good works. I think we're zealous to take care of ourselves. But I will say, I don't know that the church in America has a reputation of being people who do good deeds and share what they have with other people. I think the church in America has a reputation of being people who kind of hunker down and judge other people. So there is a call for us, what? To become a conduit of the grace of God. Not just that our hearts are strengthened by his grace, Right? I think sometimes we think about our lives as being like receptacles or cisterns for the grace of God. Like, fill me up with your love and fill me up with your grace. Yeah, I can be content. I don't have to worry about money because Jesus is with me always and he's never going to leave me or forsake me. I can be confident. Fill me up with that confidence, right? And we think of ourselves as a cistern. You and I were never meant to be cisterns for the grace of God. We were always meant to be conduits for the grace of God. That his love would flow into us and out of us into the, love, into the lives of other people. That they would look at us, that they would see our good deeds, it says, and glorify our Father, right? We become a demonstration of the grace and the love of God when we live like he lived. So it says here, let us make a sacrifice, a continual sacrifice of praise. Let us not neglect to do good and to share what we have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, if he died for me, I don't have to fight for myself. I can live for him, and I can serve others on his behalf and for his glory. It says make a sacrifice of praise. Make a sacrifice, a continual sacrifice through him of compassion and good works, sharing what you have, generosity. And then the last thing here in verse, uh, back to Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 17, and this is, a, this is a tricky one to teach. I'll just acknowledge that as we get started here. It says in 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The last sacrifice he's talking about here as an example of a life of sacrifice is the sacrifice of submission. And it's weird to teach because I am a, an ecclesiastical leader in this context, right? So in some ways, it can feel like me going, hey, it says there y'all are supposed to do what I tell you to do, so you better do it. It's in the Bible, right? 
uh, I want to be very careful here. And I would guess that some of you, maybe your hackles kind of rise up when you see the words obey and submit, right? Those are words we don't necessarily love in our culture. We don't want somebody to tell us to obey and to submit. Those feel like fighting words, right? Part of the reason why we feel nervous about words like obey and submit is because leadership, not just in the church, but across the board, has been abused. And we've all seen it. We've all been the victims of it. Places where people took leadership and authority and they used it for their own selfishness or their own gain or to abuse other people. And so there is a kind of a defensiveness that happens when we hear somebody say, obey your leaders and submit to them. We go, yeah, give me one good reason, right? I'll decide about that. Well, there's a couple of things we want to we make sure we pay attention to here. The, the words that are translated obey and submit, they, they have more to do not so much with like blind obedience, just do whatever the leader tells you, but more about placing your confidence in. That first word obey could, could just as well be translated trust. And the second word submit essentially means yield or concede. It means don't always have to have your way and don't always fight for your way of doing things, but be willing because of the grace of God to submit to the authority that he's placed over you. There's a recognition of the fact that God is in control, and that's why the writer says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? They are keeping watch over your souls. They're keeping, your watch over your, they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. The writer says it's possible to submit. It's possible to concede. It's possible to yield your will, to sacrifice your will in submission to the, the ecclesiastical, to the church leadership that God has placed over you because that church leadership is accountable before God. I'll tell you, as a pastor and a leader, this is a scary verse. This is a heavy verse for anybody who's a leader in the church, and that includes many of you. Because the reality is that there is an accountability upon my life for the way in which, not in the way, not, not in the way in which I boss people, but I'm accountable for the ways in which I stand as a watchman looking over the souls of those that God has placed into my life. A watchman on the tower who's looking at what? Well, the writer has spent at length talking about the fact that we have to have faith in Christ. We have to keep our eyes fixed on him. That we have to continue until the end with the faith we had at first. What is it the leaders are watching for? They're watching our souls for faith and continuance. Right? And it's their responsibility to watch us as those who will be accountable before God. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The writer says here it's possible to sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 13, the writer says it's possible to sacrifice our will and to submit to the authority that's been placed over us because those leaders have been put there for a reason. They're there to guard our souls, to watch our souls, to stay alert and on defense for faith and continuance. And I'll tell you, as kind of a side note to this, this is why I'm, I'm firmly opposed to the idea of like a, a human senior pastor as the king of a church. We have a senior pastor. Some of you have heard me say this before. We have a senior pastor in this church, and it's not me. It's Jesus, right? There are all kinds of leaders that are raised up for different reasons and different purposes, and we are all called to submit to their authority, and they are all called and held accountable before God to keep watch over our souls, right? I want to be really careful that you understand that, that watching over the souls of people, that, what we're talking about there, we're talking about shepherding. I don't believe in, in a pastoral role. I don't think there is a pastoral role that exists for a guy just to teach and then disappear. It's why I don't just come out of the green room and deliver some message on a Sunday morning and then disappear. It's why I'm available, and it's why, it's why all of our pastoral, pastors and ministry directors on staff are being called to enter into a relationship. We lead by watching. We lead by being engaged with the people. 
I'm not somebody who's just going to disappear, but I'll tell you that that engagement with each other, that watchfulness over one another's souls, that can be an uncomfortable thing. There may be many of you who kind of wish I would butt out of your life, right? Who kind of wish I'd spend more time in the green room and less time sitting across a coffee table from you. But it's my responsibility. It's our responsibility as pastors and ministry directors. It's our responsibility as disciple makers to be engaged in people's life. You cannot watch over people's souls from a distance. You have to be in life with them. There's no king. I'm not the president of the church. I'm an under rower. That's what the Bible uses to describe a shepherd. Somebody in the bottom of the boat who's just getting where the captain wants to go. But he says, submit and obey your leaders because they're keeping watch over your soul as those who will give an account to God. And then he says this. This is really interesting. At the end of 17, he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Not only do leaders watch out for your soul, but there is some advantage for the body of Christ when the leadership is enabled and encouraged to lead and to watch over souls with joy. I'll tell you, there are many of you in this room who know absolutely that you are a source of joy in my life, whether it's a little note you wrote or whether it's a knuckle pound when I see you in the plaza or whether it's a regular lunch date or whatever. Like, there are many of you, I see many faces and I know many names in this place who are sources of joy for me. And there's a lot that's hard about vocational ministry. There's a lot that's difficult about watching over and caring for the souls of God's people. It's not an easy job to do. But what makes it more doable and what makes it more enjoyable are the people who speak joy into our lives. But I'll say in the same way that there are many of you in the room who brought joy into my life, there are also many of you, and you know who you are, I know your names and faces, who've only brought groaning, right? Most of the difficulty that I face as a pastor doesn't come from atheists or people who hate that there's a church in the neighborhood or people who don't believe the Bible's true or who think Jesus was just a myth. Most of the difficulty in my life doesn't come from those people. You want to know where most of the difficulty in my life comes from? It comes from conversations that start with this. I've been in this church for 30 years, right? And you almost want to go, oh, I wish you hadn't said that because that's only going to make what you say next more embarrassing, right? It says we as as the people of God in light of the grace of God have the opportunity to make a sacrifice of our will in order to bring joy to our leaders so that they can lead with joy and not with groaning or with a burden because them leading with a burden has no advantage for us. It is profitable for the body of Christ to have joyful leaders and that joy comes when we work together in submission to God and in submission to one another. And so he says there is a call for us through Christ to make continual sacrifices. The last thing I want you to see this morning is this, that all of the sacrifices that he gives us as examples here this morning are things that Jesus himself did that the writer has already described in the book of Hebrews. It talks in Hebrews chapter two about the fact that the fruit of praise came from the lips of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter two, talking about the work of Christ, verse 11 and following it says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he, that's Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I don't know if you think about the singing voice of Jesus, but Jesus utilized his thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes to worship God in every moment, continually worship God. Not only that, we talk about doing good and sharing what you have. The Lord Jesus came and sacrificed his life outside of the tent to sanctify us through the sacrifice of his blood. He did this very thing. We see it again and again in the book of Hebrews. He gave himself up in order to rescue us from sin and death. So when he looks at us and says, let's make a sacrifice of good works and of sharing what we have, he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done on a more eternal scale. 
And when he looks at us and says, submit to the authority that God's placed over you, well, the, the scripture, even in Hebrews, is really clear about the fact that Jesus did that as well. Hebrews 5, 7 says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence or because of his submission. The Lord Jesus submitted in his coming to the earth, in his sacrificing himself for our good. The writer says, we've been saved by grace. You don't earn it. There's no more sacrifice for sin required. But in light of the fact that we've been given resurrection life, there is an invitation for us to live lives of sacrifice. Continual, ongoing sacrifice, empowered by the Spirit, united in sacrifice for the glory of God. You know, we've talked in our study of Hebrews about the fact that the Old, the Old Testament sacrifices, the tabernacle sacrifices, they were just a shadow of the substance, right? That those Old Testament sacrifices were always just a sign. They were always a flashing signpost pointing ahead to the much greater and superior sacrifice of Christ. Can I tell you that what we see in Hebrews 13, 15 through 17 is the writer is informing us that you and I today in our sacrifices have the opportunity to be a flashing signpost pointing back to the much greater sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Then in the same way the Levitical priests pointed forward, you and I in our sacrificial lives for the glory of God have the opportunity to be a beacon, not the substance ourselves, but a shadow pointing back to the substance, the saving work, the sacrificial work of Christ on our behalf. Let's live lives of sacrifice together. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would take this word and that you would challenge us with it, that you would give us a heart to really evaluate ourselves and to think through where are the places that we're, that we're bringing a continual sacrifice. Do we think of our sacrifice as being moment by moment? Do we think of it as being annual or occasional? Do we bring to you the sacrifice of Abel who brought you his first and his best? Or have we been guilty of bringing the sacrifice of Cain who brought some in time? Help us to be people who live lives of sacrifice that we might be beacons or flashing signposts pointing to your superior sacrifice, to your superior praise, to your superior compassion, to your superior submission, that our lives would be a testimony, a confession to your much greater confession. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.